Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode was chosen by our Instagram followers. Sort of. I had some trouble narrowing down what case I wanted to cover for this week's episode, so I decided to ask our followers what they wanted to hear. Our followers overwhelmingly wanted to hear an unsolved missing persons case. When I started researching today's case, the mysterious disappearance of Julie Wefflin, I found two other cases that have been reportedly connected to hers, Debbie Swanson and Sally Stone. Unfortunately, the media coverage focused primarily on Julie's case, in large part due to Julie's husband's efforts to keep the case in the public's minds. I'm going to start with Debbie and Sally's cases because they are first in the timeline of events. I want to orient you to the area we'll be discussing in these three cases, Spokane, Washington, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Despite the fact that the two cities are in different states, they're actually only a 40-minute drive from one another so it's not uncommon for residents to travel across state lines to conduct their business. Prior to moving to Coeur d'Alene for a teaching job, Debbie Swanson was living in Riverside, Washington, about three and a half hours away. Other than the fact that she was born in Minnesota, there's not a lot of background information on Debbie's life. Friends and coworkers described her as social and athletic, and they said she really enjoyed working as a special education teacher. At the time of her disappearance, Debbie was 32 years old. School was out for spring break, so Debbie had some time off from work. At around 4.40 p.m. on the afternoon of March 29th, Debbie went to the Tubbs Hill Trail to go jogging. She was never seen again. Debbie wasn't reported missing until April 1st after she failed to show up for Easter dinner with friends and family. 
They said it wasn't like Debbie not to call and let them know that she'd be late or she wasn't able to make it. Debbie's car was found in the parking lot near the Tubbs Hill Trail. The car was locked with Debbie's purse inside. A shopping bag from Kmart was found inside the trunk, but Debbie's keys were never found. Police performed an exhaustive search of the Tubbs Hill area, including a helicopter search with infrared scanning. Unfortunately, no other evidence was found. There had been other attacks of women on the trail, but police were never able to link these other attacks to Debbie's case. The only other information I was able to find on Debbie's case was an unnamed person of interest who refused to cooperate with the investigation. Apparently, he became a person of interest in part because he lived near the location where Julie Wefflin disappeared from. But before we get to Julie's case, I need to tell you about Sally Stone. Just like with Debbie's case, there wasn't hardly any background information on Sally Stone. She was born on August 28, 1964. She moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in March of 1986, just two months prior to her disappearance. Sally worked as an exotic dancer at Cone Tiki Nightclub, going by the alias Santania. She had been off work for some time due to a knee injury. My research wasn't clear on the extent of Sally's injury, but it was significant enough to require physical therapy because that's where she was last seen on May 16th. Sally left her physical therapist's office after her appointment that day and was never seen again. She had another physical therapy appointment on May 19th, but she didn't show up for it. Sally wasn't reported as a missing person until Memorial Day weekend when she failed to show up to visit her husband in jail. Police went to Sally's home and found her unlocked car with a box of stale donuts inside. Sally's purse was missing, but all of her clothing and suitcases were still in the closets. There was also a new pair of shoes on Sally's bed and a letter from her mom, as well as an insurance check sitting in her mailbox. While it didn't appear that Sally just took off based on all of the items left behind, police also indicated there weren't any signs of a struggle. Sally's husband, Joseph Rees, allegedly received a letter from his wife on May 22nd. The letter indicated a money order and pictures would be enclosed, but neither were included with the letter. Rees told investigators that the letter wasn't sealed with Sally's, quote, trademark lipstick kiss, end quote, which raised red flags for him. I only found information about this letter in one source, so I'm not sure how credible it is. Both Sally's husband and her father, Lewis, believe that Sally may have been involved in a drug deal gone wrong. There were no other details on why both men felt that way or if Sally had a drug problem, so it's hard to be sure if there was any truth to this theory. Just like Debbie's case, there were no real suspects in Sally's disappearance. Police did appear to think Debbie and Sally's cases were related, but it's not entirely clear why. There were no signs of a struggle near Debbie's car or at Sally's house. There was no indication from all of my research that the women knew each other or had any mutual friends. While police say they review Debbie and Sally's cases every year, there have been no updates in either case since 1986. And that brings us to the disappearance of Julie Wefflin. Julie was born on May 3, 1959, to parents Robert and Bette Minor. Julie and her older sister Robin grew up with their parents in Portland, Oregon. 
As a teenager, Julie was diagnosed with scoliosis and had to have surgery to correct it. She spent six months in a nearly full body cast. Julie graduated from Grant High School in 1977 and immediately began working for the Bonneville Power Administration, better known as BPA. In the late 70s, working for BPA wasn't considered women's work, so Julie's co-workers spent a lot of time hazing her and pulling pranks on her. But none of this phased Julie. She was a hard worker with a lot of ambition. Her hard work and dedication eventually led her male co-workers to respect and admire her. Julie worked her way through a rigorous training program with BPA in order to obtain the necessary qualifications for a promotion to a safety officer position. In 1980, Julie met Mike Wefflin at a jazz concert. The two hit it off right away and eventually married in June 1983. The couple initially lived in Portland, but moved to Seattle, where Mike started a house painting company. Soon after, Julie received another promotion at BPA, so they moved to Spokane County, near the Idaho border. Mike was able to expand his painting business after they moved to Spokane, and his company grew quickly. Due to their successful careers and financial stability, Mike and Julie were able to buy a 14-acre property between Deer Park and Spokane, Washington. The property included a barn, so Mike was able to buy Julie two horses, Son and Tony. Julie was incredibly happy decorating her new home and taking care of her two beautiful horses. By all accounts, Mike and Julie were a happy couple, in love, and planning to start a family. Before I go into the details of Julie's disappearance, I want to mention a little bit more about Julie's job with BPA. When she started working in her new position as a pool operator, part of her job duties included working nights on occasion. Part of this night work involved checking in on various substations located in isolated areas in the Spokane County area. Mike often worried about Julie being out alone late at night, but Julie herself didn't seem to be too concerned. From everything I was able to learn about Julie, it seems like she was an extremely strong, tough woman and didn't let much face her. After all, she was one of the few female operators at BPA, which is badass. On September 16, 1987, there was a report of low nitrogen levels in one of the transformers at the Spring Hill substation located at the intersection of Four Mound and Cooley Height Roads in Spokane. Julie volunteered to go and check it out around 2 p.m. She signed in at the substation at 2.30 p.m., and witnesses said Julie finished her work about an hour later. So at around 3.30 p.m., Julie leaves the substation and is never seen again. Meanwhile, Mike Wefflin had spent September 15th and 16th in Ritzville, Washington, for work. This was about 50 miles away from the location Julie was last seen. Mike tried calling Julie around 5 p.m. on September 16th, but she didn't answer. He tried calling again around 7.30 and 8, but Julie never picked up. When Mike got back to his hotel room that night, there was a note on his door telling him to call the BPA because his wife had been kidnapped. Mike immediately got in touch with BPA, and they told him Julie's work truck was found abandoned, with the driver's side door open and the back hatch down. Julie's hard hat, toolbox, water bottle, and sunglasses were found on the ground next to her truck while Julie's purse was found inside the truck. Investigators also noted what appeared to be drag marks in gravel at the scene, 
along with fresh tire tracks belonging to another vehicle. Based on all of the evidence at the scene, police immediately suspected foul play. As always, police looked at Mike because he was Julie's husband, but his alibi was solid. He fully cooperated with the investigation and even took a polygraph. He was quickly ruled out. An extensive search was conducted by police using helicopters and ground searchers. Mike, Julie's friends and family, as well as her co-workers all conducted private searches and passed out flyers and buttons. Several local businesses helped to donate 80 billboards in Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Idaho. Investigators looked into Julie's ex-husband and ruled him out. There was also the unnamed male person of interest from Debbie's case. He allegedly refused to cooperate with any of the investigations and may have sent a threatening letter to Mike after Julie disappeared. I found a reference to one other person of interest who was interviewed and failed a polygraph test before his death. It's unclear if he was ever cleared or ruled out, but I also didn't see him mentioned as a suspect either. There have been very few updates on Julie's case since 1987. In 2003, unknown evidence was submitted for DNA analysis. I couldn't find any other details on what evidence was tested or what the results of the analysis were. The most recent update came in 2011, 10 years ago. There was a storage bin found in Julie's work locker at BPA, which had remained untouched from 1987 to 2011. No other details were released on what investigators found inside the storage bin or if there was anything that could be forensically tested. There haven't been any named suspects in Julie, Debbie, or Sally's cases. All three women disappeared in an 18-month period between March 1986 and September 1987, and all three cases remain unsolved. Police have never had any real leads for any of the cases, and I'm not totally sure why investigators believe Julie's case is related to Debbie and Sally's. Julie was last seen at the BPA Spring Hill Station, a little over an hour from where Debbie was last seen at the Tubbs Hill Trail. Whatever connection police have made between Julie, Debbie, and Sally remains a mystery to us 35 years after their disappearances. If you or someone you know has any information regarding the disappearance of Debbie Swanson or Sally Stone, please contact the Coeur d'Alene Police Department at 208-769-2320. If you or someone you know has any information regarding the disappearance of Julie Wefflin, please contact the Spokane County Sheriff's Office at 509-477-4760. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode.